take a deep breath in. Just enjoy this moment. What moment? I can't believe it. In just a few weeks, my 100th episode. Crazy of Let's Keep It Real. So many awesome people. I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful. Every time I'm on with someone, I think I'm spoiled. I come away so inspired, feeling such joy, and learning something new. You know I love people. I mean, I love people. I love people even when they have different viewpoints than me. Now, when they get to the hatred part, that's where I check out. You know? And hey, I get it. You can get angry. You can get upset. We all do. But in general, if they're spewing hate, mm, I'm just going to have to say not for me. But I do enjoy listening to other people's opinions. And I always want to pick up more tidbits of how, not just to persuade people my point of view, but also listen to what they have to say and really listen and not tune out with open ears their point of view. Because just like today's guest is going to tell you a lot of different ways for you to talk to people that have different views. Just going to give you ideas that you may have not, you know, used lately because we can get our backs up in the air, just the best of us. But when you get down to it, a lot of us share the same value system. It was awesome talking to Karen. I can't wait for you to listen. Have a great time. And as always, I would love it if you would subscribe, you would rate my podcast, you would share it with your friends, you would it would really help if you wrote a review. That is really cool. And I'm going to definitely Definitely. Definitely. Am I saying that enough? I want to take this to a whole new level in the next 100 podcast with the help of you. I thank you for being with me and listening. Have fun. This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Okay, people, you know I've been requesting this for so long, and I'm so glad someone's here to answer my worldly question in how to deal with difficult conversations dealing with politics, religion, or whatever. I know recently I've been out there saying, please help me, help me. So before I go on and on about it, let me tell you about Karen Tibbles. Karen is a former corporate executive who went back to school. While there, she found a theory that changed the way she looked at the world. She has written a book describing how applying that theory can help us to talk to each other. Ooh, in a more civil way. Welcome, Karen. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Karen, yeah, your ears must have been burning. I mean, where where do you live, by the way? I'm in New Jersey. (gasps) Really? You know, I grew up in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? Um, Right now, I'm living in the northwest corner of New Jersey. Did you always live there? I grew up on the shore, uh, in the, the northern part of the shore near Red Bank. Well, I grew up, I don't know if you ever heard of it, it's not even near there, in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Oh, I'm not far from Phillipsburg now. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was my stomping grounds. Yeah, I'm in Washington Township in Warren County. Oh, I know exactly where you are. Yeah, I mean, I go back there and the biggest thing about Phillipsburg, New Jersey is the claim to fame at the time (laughs) was the drinking age that you could drink at 18. (laughs) So all the kids would come over from Pennsylvania because it's right there on the border uh, and all the colleges. It was crazy. I don't know if you remember those days or not. Well, I am 
a little, maybe a little older than you are. Um, and I remember the days when the drinking age was 21 and you had to go to New York to uh. drink. And then I, while I was in college, they changed the drinking age to 18. So the Rutgers, which is where I went to school, had a pub in the basement. Oh, okay. But then that didn't last very long because they changed the drinking age back to 21. (laughs) (laughs) Fun times. All right, Karen, I always like to start out the show with words. I love, love words. They inspire me. I think of a word every day that I want to show up in the world with. Like, what do I, how do I want to come out? Like, whatever's coming at me, what's today's word? And I change it up a lot. So everyone that's been on the show lately has said, ah, Sandy, my words have been all over the place. My emotions have been all over the place. How can you ask me that? But if you were going to narrow it in for one word that you can say you have embodied in the last past 30 days, not that you haven't been many words, but what would be the majority? Willing. Ooh. Every time I think I've heard every word, no one's ever used willing. Okay. Why willing? Well, so here I am talking to you on a podcast. And years and years ago when I was growing up, I I hid. And I wouldn't, like, talk to people. I thought I could be invisible if I didn't talk to you. Mm. So for me to be doing this, to, to be talking to podcasters like you and others, um, I've really had to call on all the willingness I have because I truly believe that I'm meant to carry this message and it's an important message. And so I need to show up and be willing. I like that. So you must have overcome then a lot of fear. I mean, if you don't like, you know, to be heard or be in the front of the crowd, you overcame a lot to do that because of your bigger purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been gradually overcoming this throughout my adulthood. Um, but just about a month ago, interesting that you picked a month as a time frame, because just about a month ago, I had an attack of fear again, just going way back to my childhood. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I had to like really work to overcome it because, you know, I guess I knew that something like this was happening and I was going to have to really step out and be very bold. You know, I'm so glad you admitted that because I was on a podcast the other day and the guy started out. I was I was actually a guest and he started out like, no, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm like, OK, dude, I know you're doing great. And you have a positive attitude. But are you saying you have no anxiety at all? No stress. It's just not affecting you. And he went on Karen, for about 40 minutes. And then finally, at the end of the podcast, he's like, OK, Sandy, I just can't anymore. Yes, I've had episodes of anxiety. I said, all right, well, you didn't have to tell me, but I mean, to say you're just pippy skippy through all this all the time, it just would be inhuman, don't you think? Yeah. And, you know, I've learned through the work I've done as an adult um, in the recovery process is that I need to be honest about my feelings. So, yeah, yeah. It was funny, though. He's like, I can't take it anymore. You're such an ethical. I have to tell you the truth. So it was cool. All right. First question we had for you, Karen. I always have listeners, you know, when I tell them the guest coming on, I'm like, just what do you want to ask Karen? What's the biggest thing you want to ask Karen? And the number one thing is why marketing and religion? It came up all the time. How did she pick? It just seems so different. So that was the biggest question I heard over and over again. Yeah, that's a really good question. So my career was in marketing for many years. I worked at an advertising agency. I worked at major corporations. And my job there in both those situations was to understand what motivated people's behavior and help them to sell products. So, I mean, I used that skill at understanding what was going on to sell things and, you know, help other people in that way. But I think I also, in retrospect, when I look back on my career, I was, what I was doing was I was looking at what was important to people and trying to make sure that the people in power paid attention to what was important to them. So there was a, a, a mission part of that. Um, I remember okay. a situation where I was asked to make a recommendation on, on uh, I was working on a drug for schizophrenia and oh. the lawyer wanted to know about the types of people that should be shown. And I had to explain to him the, the 
the way the drug, the disease worked and how important it was to show certain people. And, you know, so it was my job to represent people to the corporation and make sure that they listened, you know, and I had to work really hard. And then I had a religious calling and I okay. went to back to school to go to seminary. Um, and uh, what I thought I was going to do is I thought I was going to start an organization to help people in business deal with their religious faith and how their religious faith applied to their business life, which cool. has been an ongoing question that I'd had for a long time. Yeah, that's a big one. And, um, and I, did, I did help start that organization, which is still running. And, but I thought that was going to be my life work for the rest of my career. But turns out because I am not like an organizational type of person, it wasn't really a good fit for me. It was good that I started it or helped to start it. I didn't do it alone. Um, but that it wasn't something for me to take on forever. So then I was looking for what was next. And, um, and as I say in my bio, I found this theory in, in, um, in school that totally changed the way I looked at the world. And I would hear other people talk about the theory. This theory is called Moral Foundations Theory. I would hear other people talk about the theory, and but they didn't see all the implications of it the way I did. And so I started writing, thinking, well, maybe I should write a book about it. Um, and then because my career was in marketing, I was like, well, I'll write a book about marketing because I see a lot of implications for marketing. So I wrote the book about marketing. And my friends and people I'd run into would say, oh, well, your book was really interesting. I really enjoyed your book, but I don't know what to do with it in my everyday life. Ooh. So then I said, oh, I guess I have to write a book with more instructions for everyday people. So that's <laughs> the second book. Yeah, and that just came out, right? Yes, yes. In a April. So everything you're doing to promote it must be online then, right? Nothing in person? Right. Right. I had started doing speeches. Um, actually, before I started writing the book, I was giving um, my, my seminary had given a, had asked me to come and give a talk on the first book um, because they had a, a business kind of related um, uh, conference. And so they gave me a speaking slot there and I found myself really doing the what I ended up publishing is the second book uh, yeah. because I realized that I needed to make it more, more, um, more, more actionable. So, um, so that was really the kickoff for me um, writing the second book. So I've done a, I did a few of those presentations in person before the, the uh -huh. lockdown and then, you know, everything since then is virtual. So what is the title of the second book? So it's called persuade don't preach. And what I mean by that. You know, a lot of people bristle when they hear the term preach. Um, and what I mean by preach is when you talk and you really don't take into account what your audience is thinking or the person you're talking to. So you just like kind of, uh, one, one person calls it, you rehearse what you believe and then you expect the other person to be convinced when you haven't taken into account what they believe and what's important to them. And then if you can take into account what's important to them, that's persuading. Gotcha. Well, usually, Karen, I have so many questions from my audience, but I'm breaking my rule and I'm asking questions myself because, like you said, you even listen to some of my podcasts and you know I need answers. So, number one, I'm very much the kumbaya person. Like, what you believe, you believe. I'm not trying to convince you of my point of view. This is who I am. If you like what I have to hear, great. Anything that's love-based, Karen, I'm also about, you know, whatever gets you to hug a tree. But recently, we've been going back and forth of whether I should have a guest on with another guest with two different political views, and would that really benefit the audience if both people were civil, which is, you know, big thing. They'd have to be able to be civil. And I'm telling you, it raised a lot of controversy because some people are saying to me, why would you want to give the other side a platform to tell their story? 
you shouldn't even give it a platform. And then the other side is saying, well, that's unfair. You have to let both people speak and, and people hear what they need to to make their come to a conclusion. So I really would love advice on this point because we have done nothing so far on this podcast. Okay. Well, it depends on how the people handle it is my first reaction. Okay. And my second thing is when you say people who have the reaction, why are you giving them a platform? Well, the point is, is that we are never going to come to any agreement on anything until we can sit down and listen to each other. Right now, the way we're talking to each other, we can't hear what the other is saying because we, we don't understand each other. Yep. So we need to be able to talk to each other in a new way. So I'd like to propose something. Okay. I'd like to propose that you have two guests who promise to try the reframing technique that I explain in my book and that you, you can, that they commit to try to listen to each other in that new way and to kind of role play what goes on in the, uh, when, you, when you use this technique. I like that. I like that because I totally agree with you. I don't know the technique, so I'm going to have to, you know, really read up on it to make sure I can say here, this is the foundation. But I like listening. <laughs> I like listening to people, even if it's totally different than me. I want to hear what they have to say. And I really want to get to the why of it. And I feel like right now we're not there. You know what I mean? They're just talking at each other. Right. And what happens is when we try to listen to each other, um, you know, I, a lot of my work keys off of uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. Okay. And um, I hear people say, well, I tried to think about how to do the, the, what he says to do in the book, but then I get so angry. And when our, when our emotions are, are t so upset like that, we can't listen. So we need some, a new way to approach so we don't get angry. I think right now, <laughs> if you could give that gift to even 10% of the people out there, that would be awesome. Because we're in a totally different time, but I just see such anger or fear out there. And I don't want to just sit back, Karen, and not do anything about it. I don't know how to approach it. That's why I was like so excited you're coming on because I feel like it's needed. And somebody out there has to say, oh, hey, I can behave, not behave, like you said. Maybe they just don't know the right technique. That might be possible. Yeah, well, nobody has, you know, like Heights book, bestseller. A lot of people have read it. They say it changed their viewpoint, but it doesn't change what they do. Because he, what happened in the academic world is that after he published that book and his previous, you know, he'd been working in that area for a while before he published that, the popular book. Um, there are two other researchers, uh, Rob Willer and Matt Feinberg, who took his work another step, which is the more, what they call moral reframing, and I call ethical reframing. Okay. Where you, what, what it is, is that you understand what's going on with the person not just their issue, and let me take a step back, because what I've done is I've taken Willer and Feinberg's work and Heights' work, and I've tried to make it really practical. And the first practical step that I came up with is you need to separate the person from the values that they hold and from the issues, from the positions they take on the issues. Yeah, ooh, that's huge. Three separate things. So a lot of times we demonize people because they take positions on issues that we think are unethical. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. So first we need to, set, to separate into those three things. And then once we do that, we can start to say, oh, here's the values that are driving their position. Okay. And then you can say, oh, well, I understand that value. I have that value in my life because we all have the same basic values. It's just we use, we have different, I'll, this is a, a mantra of mine, we have different interpretations of them and different importance to them. Okay, okay. I'm writing all this down. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have the same values. Everybody, I mean, these are cross-cultural studies. Everybody has the exact same values. We just express them differently. 
and give different importance to them. And once we can recognize that, then we can say, okay, here, what this person is saying is a manifestation of this particular value. And this particular value is not a bad value, it's a good value. And, but that doesn't mean that I have to agree with them on the issue. Instead, I might be able to convince them if I reference another value that's important to them um, and tie the issue to that other value. And that's what Willer and Feinberg have done, is they've demonstrated that you can convince people. It's not everyone. You can't. It's not 100%. Yeah, yeah. But you can get people to at least listen to you in a different way if you take something else that's important to them and tie it to the issue. Well, I've been not myself struggling with that, but I've been struggling a lot with some really close friends of family, which I'm reading your second point that says, you know, if you respect and love them, it is worth making an effort to try something new. And I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I'm having, Karen, a really rough time with people that are the most amazing, lovable. I mean, I can't say enough what they do for mankind. But when you bring up their opposite political view, it's like anyone that has that view is evil and spreading hatred. And I, I can't even get them to get off that. Like, I don't even know where to go with that. And these are not like uneducated, stubborn people. I mean, I guess they're stubborn. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to retract that they're stubborn. So I'm just at a loss. Right. So what you're, what you're talking about is something that um, I've, I've heard called common enemy belonging. And it's something that I think is it's a really useful way to think about it. When common. common enemy belonging is when you are against everything that the people who are on your opposite side are for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Brene Brown uses it in her book on belonging, but she didn't create the term. Um, oh, I, I just read that book, yeah. I uh, forget who she attributes the term to, but I think it's a really useful term because that explains so much about what's going on. So what happens when you can reframe, and it's a lot of work to reframe. So as, as you said, it's only worth doing if you really care about the person because yeah. otherwise you're putting in a lot of work that yeah. it's not worth it. But if you care about the person, you want to maintain the relationship, what you can do is kind of position yourself as if you're on their side by you know, complimenting them on how much they care about the values that they're expressing so you've identified, so you've taken what they said, you've taken the, what the position they took on the issue, you've identified what the value is behind it, then you've recognized how important that value is and how useful it is, and they all, you know, they're all useful. I mean, these are all, you know, hum, human values, so none of them are bad. It's just they come into conflict with each other, I and mean, we have to deal with the conflict between them, and we deal with them in different ways. And then once you've um, been able to say, okay, I love you, I, I really respect you, and I see that this is really important to you, this value, Am I, and then, you know, check in with them. Is that yeah. the right way to, for me to interpret? And they'll go, and they'll probably say yes, and if they don't say no, then maybe they'll give you some more information, and you can uh, take that and re, re, rejigger it. But meanwhile, you're now not on the opposite side, because you've said to them, I know what you're talking about and I share those values. And then yeah. you can yeah. start to talk to them about the issue in a new way. Yeah, so you're finding the common ground and hoping then that somehow you can come. I, I don't even know if, is it, is it, all right, let's back up a second. Should your objective be for them to change their mind or is your objective just to understand them. Well, you can't get them to change their mind until you understand them. Ooh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it depends on how strongly you feel about the issue. But I have to say that in order for us to come to resolution on these major societal issues that we want, 
we're never going to just convince the other side to come to what we say. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Um, I was listening to somebody, it reminded me of the example of Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Accord and how, what a huge step, you know, they were bombing each other, okay? They were yeah. killing each other. And what a huge step it was for them to sit down together to hammer out the Good Friday Accord. And then it had to be pa passed by the whole population. It had to have a majority vote. And that's over 20 years ago. And they've held to that. So, you know, this stuff is hard to do, but it can be done. Yeah. So here's a big question. I have a neighbor, one of my neighbors, neat lady, but totally different views of me. Okay, great. So what? I love listening to her if I see her in the streets. She's a sweet lady. But I do a lot of gardening, Karen, tons of gardening. And for some reason, when she's outside, which she's outside a lot, instead of using earbuds to listen to radio, she blasted so loud the entire neighborhood could hear it. And they're political shows, and it's one side, and they hate the other side. So I don't know how to approach this. And so I was talking to my family, and I said, listen, I wouldn't care if it was my view or her view. I don't think it's appropriate to have a political show that hates the other side and that we have no choice if we're outside. We have to listen to it. And they, my family said, no, no, no. If it was our view, I wouldn't care. There's this hate and evil. I'm like, okay, there's the problem right there. But I don't even feel that way, Karen. I just don't know. Can I even go up and say anything? Because right now what I do is I literally go to the other side of my house or I wait. But now sometimes it's hours that she's playing it. And they're just spilling whatever other side, like evil, hate, evil, hate. So what do I do, Karen? Okay. That's a tough one, right? right? Putting me on the spot. So oh, yeah. a lot of what you're talking about is common enemy belonging. Okay. So she's listening to a show that is very clearly saying, we're right, you, everybody else is wrong. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So that's in the belonging uh, moral foundation or ethical frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, People who do that often have other manifestations of that ethical frame that are not as objectionable. So they tend to be very patriotic. Yeah. They tend to be, um, what's interesting is they tend to, to join a lot of groups and they tend to be very helpful in those groups. Mm -hmm. And what you could do is you could start talking to her about the other dimensions of that moral foundation and kind okay. of say i i hear you you know saying the playing this radio and i think that probably means that you're you know you're very uh patriotic you're very uh you care about america a lot i really yes. admire people who care about america a lot so you know you're getting them on your side getting her on your side mm -hmm. and for you to her to think okay but then you say but I'm, um, so now comes the tricky part. <laughs> and you put me on the spot here. That's all right. There's no right or wrong. <laughs> it's okay. Um, what, I, what I generally do is I do a, a mental run through of the moral foundation. So I'll do that. I'll, I'll talk aloud if you don't mind. Yes, please. We've talked about the belonging moral foundation. Um, the next one is respect for authority. Now, people who are listening to those short sorts of shows also tend to be high in respect for authority. Yes. You're right all, on all these points, by the way. I already okay. know. So good, good carrot. <laughs> um, and people who find those shows objectionable are low on respect for authority. Okay. Um, now, authority is a useful tool. It's a useful technique. It's been responsible for um, you know groups that had strong leaders are the ones who survived. That's why we have high respect for authority in our society, in our world, because those are the groups that did well. Now I'm not sure that's going to be useful, so let me leave. Let me let that lay that's for right. a minute. I'm taking all these little notes, and I'll go to the, the third one, 
which is sanctity purity. So sanctity purity is again another evolutionarily important um, value that we have and it it's actually tied to the disgust reflex so when you find something that you're eating as harmful you you make a face it's called the disgust gape and it, oh yeah oh i make big faces yeah yeah you curl your upper lip and your your nose flares and that's related to having the dis- feeling of disgust What's happened, interestingly enough, for all of us, is that the disgust reflux has been uh, broadened beyond food to things that people find objectionable. And they actually use the same, the exact same um, look, the disgust, the uh, disgust um, gape. When you're talking to somebody, they might be be using the, the, the exact same uh, facial look. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, that's the third one. And those are the ones that conservatives are higher than liberals in. Okay. Liberals are higher in the next two, which are care harm. Right. Care harm is the next one, which is care for others or right. avo- avoidance of harm. And uh, the last one, that that doesn't need a lot of explanation. Um, But then fairness is the last one I'm going to talk about. Now, fairness is a little tricky. Um, I said that there's a difference in interpretation, and it's so important in the fairness moral foundation. Because there's three different flavors of fairness. Okay. There's the equality flavor which liberals tend to favor. Yep. And if the liberals don't favor equality, then they favor something that's called need-based. So giving more to people who need it. Okay, cool. I got it. Um, or which would be like affirmative action or reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, but conservatives tend to favor a merit-based flavor oh. of fairness. Oh. And... What's interesting is that if you, the psychologists who do research among really young kids have demonstrated that young kids have all three forms of fairness, just naturally. Okay. But what happens is as we age, we tend to favor one or the other. Got it. And we don't see the value and the validity of the other forms. Hmm. But we actually do have them. I mean, you know, if somebody gets promoted at work who doesn't do a good job, even somebody who favors equality is not going to think that's a good thing. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. So, but we don't, but again, we favor one of them and we use that in in our judgments. And what I've often found is that even though conservatives aren't as high on fairness as liberals, if you can use their form of fairness, then sometimes you can change their minds. Got it. Like, I'll, I'll tell you a story about my aunt, and I can't actually give you a success story, but I can tell you the... <laughs> That's just who I can't wait to hear. All right, Karen, go I'll tell you it. the failure and then what I hope would have happened. <laughs> I love this. Thank you. Thank you. This is perfect. Go ahead. So, um... I had an aunt who, she was my uh, mother's sister, one of six kids, and she was, um, she was there every holiday. She didn't have any kids herself, so she came to every, every one of my cousin's houses and, you know, gave us gifts and took pictures and, you know, she was just there every, every holiday, every holiday. And um, as she got older... Um, the cousins kind of chipped in to take care of her, some more than others. Um, and um, when I was away at seminary, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey. She's in New Jersey. Superstorm Sandy hits, right? Okay. And the power is out for days. And I call a couple days af- after the storm to see how she's doing. And she's talking about going out to the store 
to get food. She's running out of food. It's cold. You know, this is now November. And, you know, she and her caregiver are there in the dark alone. And I was like, this is a major problem. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm in Indiana, okay? So I'm right. a thousand miles away. <laughs> so what am I going to do? Yeah. So I I find a place outside of um, the area where Sandy affected uh, for her to go. I, I reserve a hotel room. I arrange for somebody to go pick her up. I call her and explain it everything. And then I had to convince her to actually go. She wanted to like check with her so and so and check with so and so. Like, no, you have to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I get her out, get her and her caregiver out of there. Everything's good, right? And here I am, seminary student. I feel like really proud of myself, pat myself on the back, right? Well, <laughs> the when school was over, I went to go visit her in person. And I'm sitting there in her living room, her caregiver's, you know, a few feet away. And she, oh, I forgot to say, she, she was blunt. Okay. okay. If she had something in her mind, she just said it. Okay. There was no pussyfooting around. Okay. Well, at least you know where you stand. <laughs> right. So she starts in on how the immigrants are trying to get in. Now, okay. what, I, what I also neglect to say is her caregiver is Polish and doesn't speak very good English. Okie dokie. <laughs> But she spoke good enough English that she would have known what my aunt was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I got really upset that my aunt was saying this. I thought it was really rude yeah, to say absolutely. it in front of her caregiver who was keeping her in her home and keeping her clean and getting her fed and, you know, just being there, a constant companion. So I told her that I thought it was rude and I left. Gotcha. Well, I never saw her again. Ugh, I hear you. So I'm, I, I just, you know, I justified myself by saying she was acting rude. I didn't want to put up with it. She never yeah. called me. I never called her. And, you know, she died like a year later. Mm, that's rough. She was 93. But what I've realized through doing this work is that I, I've come up with what I wish I could have said. So what was going on? First, let me let me analyze what was going on. It was obviously the Belonging Moral Foundation. That's what immigration is all about. Okay. Okay. So if I had said, you know what, Aunt Dot, I love you. And, you know, I did love my Aunt Dot, and I don't think I ever told her. So that's another sad part. But if I had told her that I loved her and told her that I saw that her country was really important to her and that, you know, she's right, we need, we do need to make our country important to to us. And I do feel it's important to stand up for our country. But that I also want to, would hope that people, immigrants like her caregiver, Jeannie, would be welcome in a country if they want to work really hard and become Americans. So what I've, yeah. do, what I've done there is I've said, you're important to me. Your beliefs are important to me. And I'm using another belief that's important to her, the merit-based form of fairness, yeah. working hard, and tying it to the issue of immigration. Gotcha. And I think it would have worked. I mean, I, who knows? You don't know, but I get it. Well, here's the thing, Karen, what I have to say is, first of all, thank you for sharing that, that story because... You're sharing it, and like you said, it wasn't the best of outcomes, but you learn from it. The way I look at it is I think it's easier when you know the situation you're getting yourself in. Let's just say, like, I'm going to go on a podcast. I know what these people's views are, so I'm ready to refrain, restrain. Do you know what I mean? I'm upset there. But I think it's more difficult when you're sitting there and not expecting it, and someone is very blunt. And you feel hurting, which I can see myself hurting someone's feelings to do all that in the moment. You know what I mean? I think that's expecting a lot of someone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so for you sitting there, 
you weren't thinking your aunt was going to say that. She's very blunt. Right away, something goes through your body, you know, in fairness, whatever it is. And you just say, okay, not even that evil. It was just, I think you're being rude. That's it. But you know what I mean? That's different than you got caught off guard and rightly thought was rude and if you would have known, hey, I'm going to have to go talk to my aunt and this is going to be the conversation, I think it's a lot easier to apply everything, right? Oh, yeah, which is why, I mean, I have to say, it's taken me years of thinking this through and practicing this way of thinking to come up with this answer. Yeah, yeah. This is not easy work. Yeah. And Willer and Feinberg, who has done the academic research, did a study where they asked people to do to write an essay for the op- for their point of view, but appeal to the opposite um, political view, and what they found was less than ten percent of the people were able to do it. Absolutely. But what I've also learned is that this stuff is somewhat predictable. <laughs> okay. So you can prepare. Yeah. So let me give you another example. The other day I was out for a walk in my new development. I just moved here a little about just about a year ago. I moved here. Okay. And I ran into a group of women, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't. And one of the people I didn't know um, said something about gay marriage. Now, the reason it came up was because people knew that I wrote a book and wanted to know about it. Okay. So she brought up the topic of gay marriage and how it conflicted with her Roman Catholic beliefs and that marriage should be sacred. And because I've been working in this area, and because I know the kind of arguments that people make, and in my book, I go through a lot of the issues and how you can counter them. So I had to do this for the book. I knew what to say. I'm listening. (laughs) So I was prepared, and I, off the cuff, said... But what about if they want their marriage to be sacred at all? Also, what if they believe their marriage should be sacred? How did she respond to that? She didn't. <laughs> she just, <laughs> she just shut up. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> but I, but, you know, it was a way for me to be true to what I believe. Yes, yes. And a way to change the conversation in such a way that... It didn't go down the predictable path. Yeah. Yeah. But like you said, it's training and you wanting to do it and seeing need, which is everything. Everything. Like you have to admit there's something you want to work on or you have an issue or there's no working on it. And that's the big thing. You know, getting the majority of people to think this is something worth doing. That's the big thing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we're so caught in our rut. We're so caught in our silos. And the election, of course, doesn't help. Correct. Correct. But then after the election, we've got Thanksgiving. So no matter what happens in the election, we've still got to deal with that. So, you know, the thing that I've been struggling with, I don't. the first part of me refraining and restraining, I got down. I'm a listener. I want a peacekeeper. I, when people start arguing and fighting, my just my nature that's just how I was born like okay let's look at the other side so that's my piece of whatever group I'm in but I struggle with the last part which you just said which is shouldn't I say something do do you know what I mean and my son who's 17 and very well read like my husband they're they're not just politically active but they read like 15 i don't know how they do a paper state they want to know everybody's side they want to like they can, I, I there's no way i can keep up with the knowledge base they come from because they feel like if you're going to have an opinion you should back it up and you should come from knowledge not just what you heard on the news so i admire that so when i whenever i need new information they'll say okay mom you should read this but my son said to me just last week you know mom you being the peacekeeper silent is also just as bad as you flipping out. I go, excuse me. He goes, you need to figure out a way to stand up what you believe in a kind and loving way and don't just walk away. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> he was right, Karen. He was right. Yeah. Well, I'm like you in that I used to not say anything at all. And I don't always say something, but like happened 
the other day on my walk, um, I was able to say something, which I'm, yeah. I'm really happy. And I, you know, I did it in such a way that, you know, when I see her on the street, I say, hi, we've maintained a relationship. It's clear what I belong. And I, maybe I made her think, maybe I didn't, you know, I don't know. Right. But being able to do that and, you know, but again, I've done the work. I've done the practice. Yeah. And I think for me, it's just a matter of, I'm going to home in on that one point. Is it someone I value, I care about, I love, Do you know, that I want, it's worth putting it out there versus some stranger that I've never met? Is it going to get through to them? And is it worth putting myself out there? I think that's the biggest thing. I think I'm okay with people I really love, but I go, Karen, I go a lot of times to a coffee house and now that's outside seating. So we're back to going outside, but I could just say hello. And I have the personality that people just start talking to me about every subject in the world. And lately it's been getting very political. So that's why this is a big topic with me. You know, how to approach these people I barely know who are right about a subject matter versus just saying to them, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about it because we have totally different views. You know, maybe I should say more. So again, what you can say is you can reflect back to them the values that they're drawing on because everything they're doing is based on a, a value they hold deeply or else they wouldn't be so upset. Yeah. And I don't want to be one of the gentlemen. I love this guy. He's amazing. We have the best conversations too, because he's so well read. And when he finds out somebody's on the opposite side of him, he goes, well, Sandy, I just don't argue with him. I just say nice knowing you. And I have no time to talk to him or be friends with him. Well, I don't want that. I think that's totally wrong. That's so sad. You know, I don't want to just cut them out. I I get people do that because in their minds, I swear I heard the nice, that's what I'm saying. This is what's boggling my mind. The nicest people who've said to me, if they believe that or are for that person, they have to be basically evil and you should have nothing to do with them. And that is what gets me irate. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So So. I'm going to, I'm going to be very Quaker on you. Oh, I love Quaker. Okay, go ahead. So if, if Quakers have one particular core belief, it's that everyone has that of God within them. Oh, I agree. I agree. And so it's part of my practice to find out what that of God is in each person. Ooh, I like that, Karen. And I'm coming to believe that part of that of God in each one of them are our core values. So we need to respect the values that people hold dear. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, I have to, I had written this down from the very beginning of our conversation, but I want to go back to it. When you said, you know, you decided to go back and study religion, what happened? Was there anything like an aha moment? Like why? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. we skipped over that. You just yeah, said, we well, I, I found religion. Okay. Well, well normally I, I, it's a big thing, like, or I'm going to go back and study religion. That's a huge decision. Well, yeah. I mean, I have found religion years before that. Um, I had walked away from any organized religion when I went to, when I went to college. Um, and then I had an event happen in my middle 30s that kind of sent me back searching for a spiritual home. And the first thing I did was I went back to the the religion I'd been raised in, which is American Baptist in the Northeast in New Jersey. Oh, okay. And then um, I kind of didn't like the rules that they had. Um, So I went searching for another spiritual home and I found a community church. And then I found that I I really felt connected to God more in the silences um, in between the songs and in between people talking. And I started reading about Quakers and found that Quakerism was really seemed to be appropriate. So then I started experimenting with Quakerism. And I had been going to the Quaker meeting for quite some time, for several years. Um, I still hadn't joined, but I was, t- I was, I was uh, involved with them and going to meeting every week. We don't call it 
services and we don't call it church, we call it worship or meeting. And um, it and there's different kinds of Quakers. So just to be clear, yeah. Yeah. but the Quakers I was I was um, worshiping with were un, what are called unprogrammed Quakers, where we sit in silence unless somebody talks. Uh, and you have to the the bar to choosing to talking is um, do you have a message that God has given you? So there's a lot of searching in that. So. Um, so I was doing that, and I went to a annual gathering that Quakers do once a year. Um, from they come from all over the world, and there was a. I said I was, I had had a passion for understanding how people applied their faith to their to their business life, and I had been studying that. And somebody did a workshop at this, get what's called the gathering, um, on the topic of Quakers in business, and I thought, well, I have to go. And I went there, and I was the only person who was working for a major corporation. And uh, the sentiment was very anti-business. Yeah. And um, I I felt very uncomfortable. Yeah, I bet you did. And um, I, it was a week-long thing. I went away, came home. I woke up Sunday morning with a clear idea that I needed to go to seminary. Wow. And what I need to do is I needed to study, again, how people apply their faith to their business life. So that's See what, what I they did. did for you? Hard <laughs> <That's> job. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what I did. So um, I've, you know, I wrote a thesis on that. I, uh, you know... And, and again, I started the, the Quakers in Business organization with two other women. Um, but then I decided that that wasn't for me, that I wasn't an organization type of person. I was a writing type of person and a talking type of person. So, so hence, that's my path. That's how I got here. But I wouldn't have done that without having sat in the yeah. silence for years in the Quaker meeting. Yeah. I had, unfortunately a weird experience where I went to someone's wedding and it, the father of the bride on the way out, the man must've met me once, maybe, maybe once he was a deacon of the church. Uh, yeah. I, hi, how are you? Da, da, da. Not that well. And he handed me and my husband uh, letters. Mine was 10 pages front and back handwritten and my husband's was seven. And this man who didn't know me, but hi, how are you? And knew that I owned health clubs my whole life. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Went on to judge how I was going down an evil and wrong path because I was chasing the mighty dollar and letting it run my life. I was so upset, Karen. Like this man didn't even know me, but he just assumed because I was a business owner that I couldn't have faith in God or, you know, my spirituality. How creepy is that and weird? And my husband, his letter was more about he's Swedish. So he had like a Viking symbol on his arm and he wrote about how, and my husband is Catholic, by the way, strong faith in God. Not that it has anything to do with it, but, you know, how he was going down a path of worshiping idols. I I didn't even know what to do. And I wasn't even sure if I should tell the bride, but because she didn't even know it. And she was so upset and devastated. I said, listen, you had nothing to do with it. But who does that, Karen? Who does that? You know, it really, it was really upsetting. Yeah, I could see how that would be upsetting. And, you know, I had similar things happen to me. Um, you know, not necessarily letters but um you know people making assumptions about who i was and what was important you know because i was working for this huge major company yeah sounds like a lot of fun by the way was it fun oh i love these gatherings i just love yeah. these gatherings they're they're so yeah. much fun yeah i highly recommend them even if you're not a quaker they're still fun yeah <laughs> yeah i've i've gone to a couple but not recently and and i had a good time but i mean when you say people were, they were just assuming because you're in this big corporate world who you were, 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the things I said, so so I had had this um, sleepless night after four days of this. I had had this sleepless night on Thursday night. And um, I came in on Friday morning and I said, I feel like I've been passing, um, you know, that you accepted me. You know, they would make sly comments, but they seemed to accept me as overall. But I said, I feel like I've been passing. But then um, what had happened... Let me back up. What had happened on the Thursday was um, somebody had come in with a printout from the internet of the top 10 most socially responsible companies and the top, the worst 10 socially responsible oh. companies. Uh-oh. And on the list were companies in the same industry as I had worked in. I said I was in pharmaceuticals, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the company I had worked for. It was a couple other companies. Um, we're in the top worst, the bottom worst. And uh, the top 10 companies were companies like, uh, and this is before Ben & Jerry's was bought by Unilever, but Ben & Jerry's, um, companies that made really high-end kind of stuff that not everybody can afford. Yeah, yeah. And on the, the bottom list were companies that, make stuff that we absolutely rely on to make our world run like oil companies pharmaceutical companies banks and you know f so for them to make the judgment that because these companies are not operating in the way they think they should be run when we what we need to do is we need to find people to run them who do it in an ethical way, which is, again, go back to how do we apply our faith to our business life? Yeah. Which yeah. is, that was the, uh, that was one of the triggers. So, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and I got a chance to say that to people. I got a chance to say what I just said, that, that the companies that are on the bottom of the list are companies that we need to run ethically, and we need to do what we can to help make them run ethically. Yeah, I, I agree, Karen. I agree. And it's... It's funny because I it drives me crazy, even one of my pet peeves, when people assume if someone's well off or they've made a lot of money, I hear all the time, well, then it, it, they just must be crooked or, you know, selfish. I, I don't like putting anyone in those categories. Like, how, how can you just assume that, you know? Just drives me crazy, but, yeah, you know? That's just me. I, I have a feeling I was sitting here. So, so let me back up. Let me back up. Okay. When people say that, what they're doing is they're reflecting either the equality-based flavor form of fairness or the need-based form of fairness. Yeah, and I was just going to tell you that I never thought of myself this way, but I think I'm the equality one. I mean, most. I'm not saying I'm not the other ones, but I would think that would probably be my personality. Right. And so a conservative person would say, oh, they earned that money. They deserve it. Yeah. So that's the and difference I, in the business, sen the sentiment towards business of liberals versus conservative. Yeah, but it's really weird because I think the same way. So it's weird because I would say I'm more of a liberal person, but I've met so many of my mentors have made huge, huge amounts of money, and they're—I love them. You know what I mean? They're nothing but kind and loving, and giving. So, I don't know where I'd be, Karen. Well, we all have little quirks, you know. <laughs> none of us, none of us fall exactly. I'm talking averages. I'm talking generalities. There's always little quirks, but yeah, you always have to be the weird. No, no there's enough. There's enough truth here that it's true in general, even if it isn't true individually. Like, ooh, oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, I'm I'm socially liberal and um, economically conservative. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people I would say so in that way. Oh my God, Karen, this has been so fun. I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, it's time to go. I don't even think we got everything in. But before we go, a couple things. One, in the next 30 days, if you were going to say the word you would want to embody, would it be the same word, willing, or would you want a new word in the next 30 days? 
Openness. Openness. I like that. All right. Is there any show that you watch? That you, do you have a guilty pleasure of a show that you've been watching lately? I don't watch TV. Ooh. See, we found something out. You don't watch TV. Do you listen to radio or podcast? I listen to podcasts, yeah. Do you have a favorite podcast? Um, yeah, probably Marketplace. Marketplace. Okay. American Public Media. American Public Media. Cool. Do you have a favorite color? No. Ooh. Wow, this is cool. Do you have a favorite food? Sushi. Okay. If you were going to say, hey, Sam, this would be my perfect day from morning to night, what would it look like? Sort of like today. I got to wake up when I wanted to, got to take a warm bath, went out for a walk, did my spiritual reading, mm. and then got to talk to somebody interesting. Oh, I like that. All right, Karen, before we go, is there anything you didn't get to say that you want to get in? Yeah. So if anybody <laughs> wants to practice... I'm setting up a session for practicing these principles starting September 9th. Ooh! Um, it's a five-week session, and um, so it's on Wednesday nights, and you register through my website, persuadedontpreach.com. Okay, that's how, so I, my next question was how they can reach you, so that's where you want them to reach you. Yeah, uh, persuadedontpreach.com, or you can send me an email at Karen at ethicalframes.com. Cool. All right, Karen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing all this information. It's been a blast. My Let's Keep It Real people, I know you're going to say Karen kept it real. And until next time, toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.